Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, everybody. It is once again my pleasure and my honor to uh, have Robert B. Whitaker, uh, the author of Mad in America, the Pulitzer Prize finalist uh, for the research that led to this book, uh, as my guest. And uh, we had a, I thought, an excellent discussion last week. And uh, this week, I thought it would be good if we can continue that discussion. How are you today, Bob? Good, thanks, and thanks for having me back. I appreciate it. My pleasure. And uh, I wanted to start, uh, we, we just touched on those thera- so-called therapies that involved, um, under the chapter, too much intelligence. And, for example, it, it, uh, you list a whole bunch of therapies uh, for mental illness, all of which had wildly successful rates attached to them, such as hysterectomies, clitoridectomies, uh, the use of sheep extract. Was that sheep urine? Uh, no, I, I think I forget what it was. It wasn't sheep urine. It was, um, oh, I forget what they were extracting. I and then they pulled teeth? Pulled teeth. They that pulled was supposed teeth. to be a, a, a surefire uh, cure. Surefire cure. Yeah. Uh, you can go and then they would pull, when that didn't work, they would pull other body parts, you know. They would. Yeah, that was so, just the beginning. What fascinates me is uh, how they came up with these rationalizations uh, in, this, in this profession that seems to have assaulted the human body any way they could figure out. And how did they come up with these incredible uh, cure uh, uh, statistics? Can you talk to that? Yeah, sure. So, first of all, how do they come up with these you know, various uh, sort of wild therapies. Well, there's different routes. I mean, if we want to talk about Henry Cotton and the teeth pulling, because uh, he, he was a guy from New Jersey who, popular, uh, you know, who popularized this idea of pulling teeth as the solution for madness and mental illness. And it arose from the idea that infections in the mouth uh, you know, were the underlying cause of, of mental disorders, whether it be schizophrenia or whatever. And therefore, if you remove the teeth, somehow you remove the, side, the source of that infection and you were providing a biological cure. And um, if the teeth didn't work, then he would go on to other body parts, other organ parts, and remove those as well. And he basically, Henry Cotton... Uh, you know, said this was an incredible cure rate. I forget exactly what it was, but he basically announced that he was curing one person after another. Um, it was taken seriously by uh, many in the profession. Uh, and uh, I, so that's one route, and we, we can go in a second as to why, he, why they see it as successful. But how he, yeah, that, I'm fascinated by, by the idea that they, they said they were so incredibly, yeah, I mean, in the book you talk about 80%, 90% uh, cure, cure rates. Rate until these things then um, were looked at by somebody else. Right. Normally a person who would come up with another, right. you know, another assault on the human body. Uh, you know, and there's a set of cures. Yeah, so there's two things here. Okay, so why do, why do they declare things? Because you're right. Virtually every somatic therapy, you know, therapy on the body, when it's initially done, is declared effective. So if you go back to the early you know, the late 1700s, early 1800s, Benjamin Rush is saying bleeding the crap out of people is real good, or putting them in a chair for 36 hours and dumping water in their head is curative. Um, so you go forward, and basically you got a couple things going on. One is that uh, any doctor who tries a therapy wants to see it as helpful, right? It's rather... Uh, you know, bad to say, well, I did this to 100 people and I harmed 95 of them. So just as a matter of uh, sort of personal interest in a therapy and you're trying to promote a therapy and say you've discovered a therapy, you have a real bent towards saying it's successful. So there's that sort of built-in bias. That's number one. Number two, in psychiatry, um, and we can go a little bit to Rush and then we'll go up to the uh, uh, teeth-pulling thing, um, if, if you bleed someone, so let's say you bleed the heck out of them, and you start with a patient who is agitated or a manic, and now you bleed the heck out of them, that person is going to be fatigued, weakened, and, and, and in that way in need of rest, right? Right, right. And that can be seen as curative. 
or if you put a person in a chair and strap them there and, and you know bleed them as well, that can weaken a person. So therapies that weaken people and in fact do take away from their intelligence, they can be seen as effective because that person is no longer as physically able or as mentally able, in essence, to mount emotional responses to the world uh, and mount physical responses to the world that can be seen as problematic. So that's a, a, a real point where the interests of the caretaker or the psychiatrist diverge from the patient. So the psychiatrist or the asylum superintendent, they want a therapy that makes that person easier to manage. And a therapy that does that, that just quiets a person, say, will be seen as effective. But the patient who might like mounting emotional responses to the world and might be like being able to have wild thoughts, that person isn't likely going to see that as effective. And right. might, in fact, see it as, uh, you know, almost a form of torture, et cetera. So those interests and those ways of viewing outcomes are not at all aligned. So that's one of the reasons you get people doing these crazy things, saying that they are effective when um, you have to say, well, what are you measuring? How do you measure those outcomes? And anyway, I think big picture, that's what happens in psychiatry, happened historically is therapy, A, you have doctors wanting to see their therapies as uh, effective, and two, therapies that weakened or either physically or mentally and, and sort of diminished their capacity to respond to the world were generally seen as effective as well. So that's why I think you have this history of, of crazy therapies. Now, just one funny, not funny thing, but dealing but with have the... To laugh, because, Bob, if you don't laugh, you cry. Yeah, yeah, I guess that thing. But with Henry Cotton, for example and his teeth-pulling therapy. People later said this probably was real effective because other people seeing that they were about to get their teeth pulled said, oh, listen, I'm better. Get me out of here. That's right. I was just (laughs) going to ask you, how much of this becomes a fear so that the ability of the individual who still can tell, you know, that they're going to have their butt kicked real bad? Oh, well, you know, uh, listen, I mean, electroshock, that was part of it. I mean, yeah, well, the sense was that if you were in asylum in the 1940s and the thing was, I mean, you can even read the, uh, if you read some of these asylum reports and when electroshock was used, they talked about it as a, in essence, a, as a punishment tool or a way of keeping people in line. Right. So people that might have been, uh, in other words, the threat of the therapy often was seen as, sort of changing the behaviors of patients. So there's no question that electroshock in the 1930s and 1940s, that part of its function was um, to be a, 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 something that people feared and therefore kept people in line. Right. And they even talked about it like in, in Milledgeville. What did they call it? They called it the Georgia Power Cocktail or something like that. And the idea was you misbehave, you get this, quote, uh, a treatment. I, just, just a quick thing about that. I had a young guy I worked with. Uh, was a former student who begged me to work with her son, and I actually made some home visits. And th- this was a Russian family, and the level of violence in the home was just beyond belief. The mother would take very large onions, big onions, like pound, two-pound onions, put them in a plastic bag, and swing them around. And when someone she was angry at walked in the doorway, she would let go with the bag, <laughs> okay. smack them in the head. And this kid was violent, and he was angry, and he did all kinds of really awful things. And he would be hospitalized. And, of course, uh, the, the, you know, I, I, as I keep maintaining throughout my show, all of these psychiatric labels, particularly the severe ones, are, are moral judgments. And if you're acting badly, because that's exactly what it is, you're acting badly, you have to act well. And they would give him shots. I forget the drug they gave him, but it would knock him out. And finally, they were about to give him shots one day, and he begged them. He begged them. He said to them, please, don't do it. I'll be good. And the guy gave him the shot anyway and said, too late. You deserve this. And it was very clear. I had another kid, I think I mentioned last week, handcuffs in a bottle that these, the drugs they were giving him were handcuffs in a bottle. Now, I can understand. I, you know, my wife was a special ed teacher, and she said, boy, I wish I could have had some kids in handcuffs. Right. Because they're really difficult. But I think that's also part of the justification, that you have a moral judgment of somebody who's acting badly, 
And all of this, I think, you know, that the threat of all of this pain is going to stop people from acting badly and make them act better. Well, there's no question that played a role uh, with some of these therapies. And certainly when they brought in the antipsychotics and Thorazine and they had the injectables, um, those could be used, you know, in the 60s and all as a threat as well. Like either behave or we're going to, you know, shoot you up with this antipsychotic in the butt. And some of that still goes on today. So that that fear of being treated, so to speak, and that threat of being treated, whether, say, injected uh, with a long-acting antipsychotic or electroshocked or back when they did metrazole convulsive therapy, um, no question, you know, those... The fear of that was used to keep people's behavior in line or try to keep people's behavior in line. And remember, the behavior is behavior as desired by the caretaker, right? Yes, the caretaker, whether it's the family or whether it's the psychiatrist or whether it's the courts. Right, some sort of behavior that others will find successful. Those, I mean, yeah. will find you know better. Now, and those are obviously they, people in power generally. Right. It's always the person in power who define, who makes the diagnosis in the first place. Sure, but that, there's no, no question that's a big part of what goes on. Uh, I wanted to ask you uh, just a side issue here. Um, hysterectomies, clitoridectomies. Do you think that there was an issue here, an assault on women in particular? Because almost all the doctors were men. Right. You well, was, you know, so for example, the, the I can't even pronounce this, clitoridectomies, where they remove the clitoris. I mean... Oh, that, that's certainly seen as an assault on women's sexuality, right? And the thought with that was that, you know, masturbation was bad. Masturbation could be sign as, uh, you know, a sign of insanity. So for if you took away the clitoris, maybe you would stop the masturbation. Well, you didn't remove, did nobody remove penises? Uh, it was they? actually once a little, no, but it was every once in a while the idea was that you would, um, you know, maybe... Um, Remove remove the testicles. There was that thought in the late 1800s. Yeah, but but no, was, generally they didn't. Obviously. Right. Um, so yeah. Listen. I mean, there, there's there, there, you got If we go to power relationships, um, you know, part of it is clearly through history of, uh, you know. In fact, I forget where I saw this. It had to do with a study about diagnosing schizophrenia, and. So they and it was it was just a study where they gave um, case studies to psychiatrists, ready, and the the d- details in these case studies were the same except for one thing. They would have, they would change whether it be a man, white man, white woman, black man, black female, and and then they would either diagnose them with schizophrenia or a manic depressive illness, etc. And what they found in this study was that, I think it was. Was it black? I think actually black men got most likely to be diagnosed as schizophrenic, then black women, um, then white women, and then the least was white men. And the point of this was, you know, the white psychiatrists, males, were were sort of less threatened by those most like them, other white males. And then came white females, and then, you know, the color factor as well. And I really can't remember whether it was black men or women, et cetera. But the point of this is, Men are more likely to see female behavior as, uh, you know, odd or, uh, you know, diagnosable than, than uh, you know, they are maybe to see male behavior in that way. So, yeah. and I mean, you know, if we go back to the 1800s, there's even stories when, you know, men, in essence, are committing their uh, wives to asylums in order to get rid of them, that sort of thing. Um, so there's there's often been an um, well, an element story. of uh, you know uh, oppression there, no question. You know the great story of Freud, uh, who who invented the the Oedipus complex, the Electra right. complex, and his patients uh, began to say to him, tell him uh, when they trusted him, when he worked with them, uh, and he was working out his talking cure that they had been sexually molested by fathers, older brothers, uncles, somebody who lived in the building. Right, and uh, it really didn't do well to say that the upper middle class burghers of of uh, Vienna, who were paying Freud's salary, um, were having uh, sex with their uh, children. Right, uh, this was not to be. You know, we know now that this occurs more than it should occur. Right, but he then invented this idea 
that the child was mentally ill, not because they were sexually abused as a child, but because they wished for it and they were frustrated. Right. And what the cure was, all the way into the 60s, when the feminists began to uh, fight back uh, against this whole psychiatric, well, some of the psychiatric uh, uh, attacks on women, when they saw this as a male-dominated kind of profession, and they would uh, fight back against this. And we now know that most of the patients that Freud, who complained to Freud that they were sexually abused were. Right. They absolutely were. And so uh, he, up until the 60s, male analysts in particular, uh, the cure for the patient was to admit that this was a fantasy and never happened. Wow. Yeah, I mean, you know, and also just as you were saying that uh, in terms of if you look at who gets electroshocked historically, it was much more the women who were getting electroshocked than men. Yes. Well, isn't it true, I, or, 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 I don't know if you did research on this, when men act out, they go to prison. When women act out, they tend to go to mental institutions. Well, historically, I think there's some truth to that. Now they're, put, now they're putting young men in mental institutions left and right for acting out. Right. I mean, you, there, there is a whole, I mean, if we're jumping ahead here, but there's this whole new sort of mental health system springing up for, uh, you know, juvenile delinquents, you know, juveniles that c- commit some sort of crime or whatever. Right, right. Well, they get, they're often given a choice, either, you know, go to a mental hospital and accept a diagnosis and take drugs or go to jail. I mean, I went out to a, a Massachusetts hospital recently and there was one black, uh, you know, one young black man after another said, well, I was given the choice and so this is a choice I picked. And nobody said go to prison? Well, they sort of gave them the option. You can because either... prison, at least, you get a fixed term. Right. Go to a no... mental hospital. You could spend the rest of your life there because it's till the psychiatrist thinks you're cured that they right. will let you out. Right, and not only that, also you get hit with heavy-duty drugs, too. Yes. Um, you know, I think at that moment you're 18 years old and you said, well, go to a hospital or go to a prison. What right. Say, well, right. I'll go to the hospital. Yes. And you have no idea what you're, you're setting yourself up for. Yes, I, I would recommend if anybody asked me, uh, go to prison. Well, you know, Larry, generally, you know, but I used to work in prison. I used to work in Attica Prison many, many years ago. Did you? And prisons are different now because they didn't used to medicate the crap out of people in prisons. But so when was... I was in Attica Prison in the late 70s, people weren't being medicated. Now they get, they get, you know, a lot of them. In other words, even if you go to prison, it's like a mental hospital now. Half of the, you right. know, they're medicating the crap out of people. Yes, yes, yes. Psychiatry is winning, unfortunately. Really well, is. there is a thing in the Globe today, and then we'll go back to too much intelligence. An article today that in the Boston Globe that said half of, <laughs> this is so silly, it's unbelievable, it said half of college-age kids now qualify for a psychiatric diagnosis. And this was being done like, you know, with a straight face, as if this yes. could be true. Half. Yes. How can half be mentally ill? I mean, it makes no sense. Yeah. You could declare anybody mentally ill by creating a criteria. I mean, you know, they're, they're coming up with one for the DSM-5. Right. Um, uh, compulsive shopping disorder. <laughs> In fact, you know, what's interesting is I was surprised that because it, 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 I knew that was around. There was a woman in the Midwest some years ago who uh, was heavily into debt, thousands and thousands of dollars into debt to the company, and she went to a psychiatrist who actually made the diagnosis, compulsive shopping syndrome. The judge accepted it, and she was declared ill so that she didn't have to pay back any of the money. <laughs> right? What she didn't know is that she'll never get credit again as long as she lives. Right, right, right. Who's going to give her credit if she's too mentally ill <laughs> to, to manage, her, manage her money? Yeah. But anything could be turned. Any well, you know, there was apparently an advice column. Someone just called me up this about some kid who lies all the time. And uh, the advice was, well, he probably has bipolar disorder if he lies all the time. Right. In other words, it wasn't a moral, it wasn't something that he had, you know. Right. When, if, you, if, you, if, if I were a kid, when I was a kid, if you lied, that was a character flaw. And you yeah, so it's more correct it. Right. <laughs> but, but now it's on his bipolar. I mean, that's just it's a, bipolar. Give him, give him, uh, yeah, yeah, give him. Right, exactly. Go back. I want to go back to the um, Manfred Sekel and that whole history of shock. And I want to because uh, you would have thought, I thought for a while it might even disappear when Peter Bregan 
and, and some others really assaulted the, the uh, electroshock right. and demonstrated uh, you know, the fallacies about it and just how unbelievably dangerous electroshock was. Uh, but it's back now with a vengeance. It is so back. we go through the history of that right up until present time. Sure. I mean, so what we get in the mid-30s and, uh, is uh, a variety of treatments that at the time are acknowledged to, quote, work by damaging the brain. And they're even called by some people brain-damaging therapeutics. Now, first of all, we have to understand the sort of context for this. And the context is we're in the mid-30s. Um, eugenic ideas about the mentally ill, and, right, and that right. is that they have bad genes or rampant, something like 67% of Americans accept these ideas. In fact, 67% of Americans in the mid-30s were in favor of sterilizing the mentally ill, forcibly sterilizing them. So they're not really seen as having any worth, right? And the idea is you're supposed to keep them in asylums. You're not supposed to let them out. They're an expense, etc. So once they have no worth, if you can come up with a therapy that, again, makes them more manageable, and let's say, so you have something that damages the brain, and after that brain is damaged, they're quieter for a period, they don't talk as much, they're not, they're not as physically active, that's going to be seen as, um, you know, quote, therapeutic or helpful. And so if you look at insulin coma therapy, for example, well, insulin coma therapy, of course, um, you know, basically drove people into a coma, almost, you know, into a, into a position where they were almost dying. And, in fact, when they did autopsies later, they could find lesions in the brain. Um, and so, that, you know, then they would bring them back out of this insulin-induced coma. And for a while, people were just too, too sort of enervated to, to do much, Right. Um, to talk much, to be agitated, etc. They would be like infants. If you read the, the description of patients after insulin coma therapy, they're just, uh, you know, they're, they're like little kids desiring for someone to hold their hand, to be nice to them, etc. Now, as they recovered from that trauma, they began to be like their old selves. Someone that meant often, you know, they might have wild thoughts, hallucinatory thoughts, et cetera, et cetera. So what did they say? Well, we got to do it multiple times, in essence, for the trauma to stick. So you wouldn't just have a single dose of insulin coma therapy. You would have multiple doses of it. So that was the first brain-damaging therapy. And then we got metrazole convulsive therapy, which in essence was a poison that caused this incredible convulsion that you could even end up with broken vertebrae, uh, I mean, just absolutely the most painful thing uh, imaginable. But again, it was understood that it actually was causing some damage to the brain. You had to do it many times. Now, in essence, electroshock was introduced as a way to more reliably cause this convulsion. And, you know, first tried on pigs, I think, if I remember. So the idea was you run this electricity across the brain and it will cause uh, this, this convulsion to happen. But, and here's part of the key thing, they found, in fact, initially when they did autopsies of the animals, they could see signs of lesions in the brain caused by this therapy. And that was seen as a good thing. Because, remember, the idea is that these are brain-damaging therapeutics. And there was even talk, well, we're knocking them down to a lower level of being, but that's okay because they're quieter, they're less problematic. So if you go back to the history of electroshock initially, the fact that it caused some brain damage was not seen as a negative. It was seen as, well, okay, maybe that's, that's a sign that uh, why this will be, quote, effective. Um, and again, though, so what do you see in the course of electroshock back in the 40s when they would say it's a brain-damaging therapeutic? First of all, you get it compared to closed head injury, concussive head injury, and they even made comparisons. And the understanding was, and this gets a little complicated, but if I can run through it, if you have a concussion, right, it turns out you won't be depressed after you have a concussion. And in fact, if you were depressed before, but you bang your head, often the depression lifts for a time. And the idea is that somehow that maybe there are hormones released, stress-fighting hormones are released, that in essence, in response to that injury, lift mood. Mm-hmm. And actually you see that says, well, maybe this is the mechanism of electroshock. We cause trauma to the brain. This goes back to the 40s when they were more... Um, 
you know, honest, we cause trauma to the brain. It causes this release of uh, hormones or whatever in the same way you get with a concussive head injury. And that's why, in, in essence, the depression lifts for a period of time. Now, unfortunately, as they said, as people recover from that injury, and you can actually see people's doctors saying this in the 40s, um, either the depression returns or the psychosis returns, and so we have to do it again and again and again for the trauma to stick is what they talk about. So that's how uh, you know these therapies were seen in the 30s and the 40s. And again, the idea was if we knock people down to sort of a lower level of being, where they're less engaged with the world, that's a good outcome. And, it's be, and you can see that, you can, you can come to that conclusion if you don't value them as human beings, if you don't value their capacity to, uh, you know, to love other people or to get married or to have wild thoughts or to respond in a vigorous emotional way to the world. If you, if you want a quieter person and maybe less problematic and a bit childish because if you do damage to the frontal lobes, often people end up sort of more like six-year-olds and seven-year-olds, etc. Well, that change in being, if you judge that as good, if that's your moral context, well, then these therapies worked. And it's wrong to say that they didn't work. They did work. They did cause a change in being. If you did multiple insulin comas, it caused a change in being. Yeah. If you did multiple metrazole convulsive therapies, it caused a change in being. Wasn't if you gave a... someone 50 electric shocks, it caused a change in being. The yeah. question is, is it a good change in being or, or not? And it depends on your perspective. And if you ask, after these treatments, was a person more involved with the world, less anxious, more loving, more creative, made more money? Any of the criteria that we use generally to define a successful person with a good life, you found no. Basically, they were more uh, dependent, more helpless, and less problematic with their behavior. You know, generally that is the change in being. There's a, in Walter Freeman, and, and basically frontal lobotomy is just seen as a more, uh, more, more definite, more precise way to cause damage to the brain, right? You know, that's back too, you know. Yeah, well, not quite. Well, I know what you mean. There is some They're using you know, freezing now. They freeze little portions of the of the, the lobes. But anyway, um, and Walter Freeman has this. Uh, he, there's his books are actually quite honest, and he talks about the change in people, and he talks about like, okay, I used to have this person who could play the piano. Maybe she'd be depressed, or maybe she'd be wild, etc. But you know, she could play classical. Uh, you know, she could be a classical pianist. And then after lobotomy, he says, she actually can still play. She still has, in the part of her brain that hasn't been damaged, the finger control to do it. But she no longer cares to, he said. In other words, there's no longer a love of music. That's gone. That creativity, it's gone. But in his mind, that change in being was okay because she was no longer so depressed. She's quieter. And he says, you know, after a while, she ends up sitting by the front window watching cats go by, and that's fine. She wants to eat, that's what she cares about. So the loss of being able to play classical music, that passion for music, that wasn't seen as a bad thing. It was seen as, okay, an acceptable side effect. And if you lose the creativity, you lose the possibility of suffering because of what you see in the world, you lose all of that capacity, and therefore the suffering is less, the depression is less. Well, there is that sense that, you know, if you <coughs> mute people's response to the world, that, that maybe they will have less anxiety. Yeah. They will have less depression. Now, I have to say one thing. In the 1950s, there was some sort of, this is going to sound odd, but there were some longer-term follow-up studies done of lobotomy patients, of insulin coma patients, um, and of uh, electroshock patients and a guy named Joseph Zubin at a meeting in 1975 uh, 1955 yes. NIMH convened me- meeting he says here's the truth about the history of psychiatry there has never been a therapy that has improved people's lives when we look five years out never yes. been one and now this guy's a mainstream guy at an NIMH thing he says we cannot find a single therapy when it looks at five years out 
that shows that people are doing better in terms of recovery, more socially fulfilled lives. None of these have, have, have turned out to be Yeah, they, be, they became, you know, I mean, I spent 40 years in the field. Right. And I work with large numbers of individuals who basically became wards of the field. They became mm -hmm. ongoing patients. Their life role was that of the patient. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's just endlessly tragic. On the other hand, they gave their families much less trouble. They learned to behave themselves. Well, uh, you know, yes. Here's what I... Okay, so in, in the immediate aftermath of these treatments, do they, do they sometimes behave better? Yes. They become more infantile. I'm talking about electro multiple electroshock, et cetera, lobotomy, et cetera. Yes, but you know, often long term, they were a lot of trouble. Uh -huh. You know, if you look at if you look at lobotomy patients, so many of them ended up unable to even con even uh, take care of themselves. Right, right. Um, and even with the insulin coma, they found that you know many of those patients eventually became, you know, ho horribly dysfunctional after long term. So sometimes even that benefit for patients and others is, you know, temporary, and what you end up with is a very problematic person yes. long-term, yes. but that's a ward of the state. Yes. I mean, listen, Larry, just to jump a little bit ahead here, um, we have a, a recent NIMH study of people diagnosed with schizophrenia, right? And it, it compares, uh, and it was a naturalistic study, and it just followed people for 15 years, and every couple years they looked at how they were doing, and the investigator looked about whether or not they were taking um, the drugs. And what they found is by about the second year, those who got off the drugs were starting to do a little better. By the fourth year, it was remarkably that the, those who had gotten off the drugs were doing like that. The recovery rate was 40% for those off. For those still taking their drugs was about 6%. And part of the amazing thing here is, is that... It was those taking their drugs who, in fact, were more likely to be actively psychotic. In right. fact, they were three times more likely to be actively psychotic than those who had gotten off their drugs. Yes. And that stayed true for the next 10 years. So, in fact, the drug-treated patients didn't become long-term easier to care for. They became more constantly psychotic, more problematic. And what we see in the uh -huh. off-meds group is a chance for psychosis to remit and people to sort of come back and become sort of, uh, you know, re-enter in a full way into a social life, into an employment life, and actually have the psychosis remit. So they may have been more difficult for a year or so, or 18 months or so, or maybe even two years, but long-term are they more difficult? That's not what that data shows. Yeah, no, I, I, they, for many of them, I mean, I had a woman that I worked with for about 10 years, and uh, she never stopped. In fact, she swore to me that she didn't start hallucinating until she was put on Thorazine. Well, there's some, there's some evidence of that. Uh, okay. But what she learned to do when she was on the drug is never tell anybody she was hallucinating. Right. And therefore, she was seen as being helped by the drugs. Right. right. After she learned to trust me, right. she told me she was constantly hallucinating. It was interesting. <laughs> I, I suggested to her... You know, we talked about who, who she was hearing. Well, who's, what conversation was she having that was now externalized, which is my theory about what hallucinations are. Because most of them are auditory. They're, you know, they're hearing voices. Right. They're not hearing voices. They're, 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 they're part of a, a discussion. Um, God would speak to her. And after about 10 years in, God was replaced by a panel of psychiatrists <laughs> who spoke to her. <laughs> and I tried to get, get God back. Because what God was saying to you was a hell of a lot better than what the psychiatrist was saying. And she said, yes, oh, boy, that cough is, is not any better, is it? No, I still got um, the bronchitis, and every time you make me laugh, it comes up. So I'm sorry, I won't make no, it. No, no, that's good. <laughs> um, what was interesting is that uh, she said that it sounds like a radio. And so I said to her, well, let's hope, let's see if you can uh, control the radio. Let's, in your mind, create a, a, uh, a, a volume control. And she would put the volume down until she could almost not hear. Uh, unless she was lonely or frightened, then she turned the volume up. Wow, so she was using it as See, a... Now, no one's going to convince me that this was not meaningful, adaptive right. behavior. Right. Seen by us in our society who are terrified of the idea you know, we all pray to God, but God help you that God speaks back. Right, right. Because then you're schizophrenic. 
Right, right. And God actually answers. You're in, you're in deep doo-doo. Uh, I used to tell my students all the time, never, ever tell anybody you saw a dead person. Because very common, after a, a loved one dies, you see them. Right. You wake up in the middle of the night and they're there. Uh, all kinds of interesting things that are common. People take drugs in order to hallucinate. LSD, marijuana, hallucinogenics are used all over the world. Sure. Well, you know, I psychosis quote, psychosis becomes a problem when you behave in a way that other yes. people don't like. Yes. But even just saying that you, <coughs> you know, you 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 talk to God or God answers, or or you you know you're somebody you're not. Usually, somebody you think is better than you. <coughs> right. Um, okay. I, I wanted to. I, what I, oh, you, know, you know what I want to discuss with you? Did you see a beautiful mind? I did see a beautiful mind. Fascinating. He um, was, <coughs> it to me that what he, in his initial treatment <coughs> was metrazole. Right. Was it metrazole, do you think? I think they mentioned it was metrazole. Um, it would have been one of the standard neuroleptics, yeah. I forget and which one. PBS did an interview with him, the actual, not Russell Crowe, but the actual... Yeah, John uh, Nash. John Nash, who worked his way out of it. Right. He was told you can't. And his final thing was, I worked my way in, and I worked my way out. Right. And in real life, after he was shocked, and the wife saw what these drugs and the, and the chemical assaults on him were doing, right. she stopped him from going to the hospital. And he made a, an incredible recovery. Right. In fact, uh, Sylvia, who was the biographer? Sylvia Nasser, I think. She writes in there, in the book, that he, if he had stayed on the drugs, undoubtedly he couldn't have come back and you know, resumed yeah. his, his, his high-level mathematics work. Yeah. So she saw that as key to his being able to resume the life of a scientist. But and, one, of course, in the movie, that was changed around. Yeah, it was changed around. And one of the things that got us all upset in, in ICSPP was that he says at the, in, the, in his speech at the Nobel, accepting the Nobel Prize, um, that newer drugs helped me. Right. Well, the fact is the newer drugs, the atypical drugs, antipsychotics, were not around then. And it turns out that the producer's wife or cousin or somebody was a psychiatrist and got right. them to put that line in. Well, and also, it wasn't just that, if I understand this, the pharma companies, when they heard this movie was being made, uh, went to work as well. And I, I'm not sure if they ah. went to work with with NAMI as well, but there actually was an article. And this is pretty – there's a little bit of a side story here. Um, there was an article in, like, one of these pharmaceutical trade magazines that basically writes about how pharma companies are, are going about marketing their products. And when <clears throat> when the movie came out, I wrote a, a, an op-ed that appeared in USA Today saying, you know, oh. that uh, this is not the real story and, and, and that what really happened was he, got, he, was, he, he couldn't have gotten better if he didn't get off it. In other words, he couldn't have resumed his life as a, a, a mathematician unless this had happened. And what this article wrote in this pharmaceutical trade magazine, it detailed how pharma had worked with that producer you're talking about to, to, to change the story and get this plug-in for the atypicals. And then it talked about how, you know, and then this article mentioned how I had written this op-ed, et cetera. And then it talked about how the pharma companies went to work to make sure that that story didn't get, uh, you know, promoted very much as well and how they knocked down that story as well. Wow. So hey, the point of this is, is that... Uh, it, it, that goes to, to show about how we delude ourselves and how society ends up deluded about... That's because we want to, you see. We well, want we to. want to, but yeah, it fits into a myth, etc. But that's a key thing. Here was the most prominent story we've had in a long time about a guy, quote, recovering from schizophrenia. And in truth... He got off the drugs, and that was seen as critical. Yes. And next thing you know, the public is being told it's, right. the, it, it's the result of these wonderful new drugs. It's, a, it's exactly opposite of the truth. Absolutely. Uh, somebody called in. Who's there? Hello. Hello? Hello? Can you hear? Yeah, can you hear me? Yes. Who are you? Uh, my name is Johnny. Okay, Johnny. What do you have to say? You have a question for Mr. Whitaker? 
Well, I would like his opinion on... Uh, I work with uh, Alzheimer's patients. Ah. Well, I don't really work with them. I, uh, I sing songs to them. Oh, that's you nice. You know what I mean? Probably that's and the I, best thing you could do. And I noticed that with some of them, when I sang certain lyrics, that they really perked up. I mean, they weren't in this fog of haze of uh, right. bewilderment or whatever you want to call it. I'm, I, I can't imagine where these people are at. But, I mean, they actually started to notice me and they actually remembered me when I came back into the room, you know, because of the lyrics that I that I sang to them, you know, and uh, all the way back to children's songs, you know. And I was wondering what his opinion was about music as a healing force. Well, what do you think, Bob? Well, you know, you know, I don't know much about Alzheimer's patients, but um, in general, mu- music is a healing force. I mean, I think, you know, for people in distress, um, my guess is if you'd play Mozart, it'd be pretty helpful. Yeah. Um, well, I, I'm not being totally sense. sarcastic here. I mean, I, I mean, I think that music can be a real comfort. Well, they say that uh, if they play uh, Beethoven and Bach and uh, Mozart in date, well, dairies. The cows give more milk. (laughs) You know, I I happen to listen to Mozart every morning. Just put it on at the first first thing. And I'm telling you, it's like it calms me down right away. I get in a good mood. I get in a sort of a contemplative mood. And it's just, you know, and it's so fantastic as a way to start your day. And all I'm saying is it produces a, a mental and physical change in me. I can feel it. And yeah. uh, you know, so can music be helpful? I'm, I'm sure it can. Well, I think I call music life. You see, if I if I had to redo my life and I had a choice, I wouldn't be a psychologist. I'd be a composer. <laughs> it's true. I think that I think the most glorious thing somebody could do is really write a good symphony uh, or write a great song. Uh, I wrote a song that uh, kind of helped people. Yeah, I'm sure. Good. So I uh, think it was a goodbye a song, you know, that I wrote for a friend's wake, you know. Uh, and she was a well, black girl that died in a fire. And and that song is spread out throughout the country now. You that's know. great. Well, and just one last thing. I mean, just look at the history of music and cultures. When, and, they, you know, they do use music for times of collective grieving, uh, you know, to, to, to get over grieving. So clearly... History tells us it has a real power to, to make A real power. Yeah. And, and I think that what happens when you become a patient, Alzheimer's or otherwise, you're cut away from the things that really make life important. Sex, yeah. music, good food, a glass of wine. I mean, I remember with the patients who were diagnosed schizophrenic. Once a schiz, always a schiz. That was what I was taught by one of my, my best professors. I loved her. When right. I first and there was no healing. No healing. And therefore, you had to be protected from life because life could upset you. And music can make you sad. Music can make you happy. Music can make you want to dance. And, oh, and that's, so, that's brilliant. Right? I mean, I, used to, I would come into a class. I taught college for 40 years. And I would sing. Oh, really? And Where at? Come up to, uh, in, in, in Brooklyn, New York. And oh. I, would sing, I would sing, and students would say, are you crazy? And I would say, oh. <laughs> I'd say what's crazy is that our schools have no music in them. Right. <laughs> right? I mean, cut away music. Cut away all the stuff that makes life joyful. And you cut yeah. away the stuff that makes life painful at the same time. You can't feel joy. You can't feel pain. You can't feel pain. You can't feel joy. So yeah, once yin and yang. Yes. And so once you've been stripped of this, and, and my beef with so much of psychiatry, and, and, and those who treat people uh, is not only what, what Bob has been talking about, where you see them as so inferior, but you want to cut them down. You want to put them into a state of being where they can't get excited. And therefore, yeah, you, you, you know, Larry, I mean, that's, that's even sort of codified into, uh, you know, how clinical trials are run. I mean, it's always about the diminishment of the target symptom, right? Yes. Are yes. you diminishing the... Uh, depression, for example. So if that goes down. But you'll see, if you also look at, in fact, I just saw this study about other psychological responses. Well, they'll, they'll talk about being become more apathetic. Uh, some people talk about, you know, the loss of creativity. 
of the lack of um, sort of interest in life. And so it's just what you're saying. You're knocking down the depressive feeling, but you're also knock, you're really knocking down the sort of emotional response to life often becomes yeah. part of it. Yeah, and that's part of the, the evaluation process is problematic because yeah. so much it is, as long as we remove the target symptom, that's good. Right. But we're not looking about what, what else might be lost. Yes, and, and we, what we do, you see, is we isolate the individual. So the individual is the patient. We don't ask, what is the context of a person's life? I never met a person seriously depressed who hadn't been kicked in the ass too many times by life. Yeah. And no, depression, therefore, is a response to that. Right. That seems generally. You know, I've been, re I've been reading uh, poetry from, uh, I went out to, as I said, to the state hospital, and, and some of the younger, especially the younger women now have been sending me their poems. You know what it is? It's just, these poems are filled with pain. Yes. The, the, yes. I mean, they just are, I mean, you know, they've all got diagnoses, bipolar or whatever it might be. Right. But what, what their poems are saying are people that are just, in, 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 you know, a lot of pain there. I mean, they angst. A lot of angst, yeah. a lot of pain, a lot of, you know, uh, you know, a lot of trauma. That a lot of humiliation about. and a lot of Humiliation shame. and... And a lot of fear. Fear, I mean, sexual abuse. Names, you know, the names of the emotions that, that, that motivate us, fear, shame, guilt, they're gone. Instead, you have bipolar disorder, schizophrenia. Uh, um, I, I can't stand the one, what's a borderline personality disorder. Right. Most you know what the old joke is about borderline personality disorder. Yes, that's, that's right. when the psychiatrist doesn't like the person. Yeah, by the way, that's, <laughs> that's what they put on a spend. You know, they put on that's, a special. That's on true. That when you when the when the patient won't trust the doctor, and this is true for psychologists yeah. as well. Well, you go into the history. It's mostly women who are diagnosed borderline. Right. You find that almost always there's a history of abuse. Right. So you say to a patient, "Trust me," and if the patient was smart, say, "Why the hell should I trust you? I don't know you." Right. If I trust you, it's because you have to prove to me that you're trustworthy. Right. But we set up on our throne. We have our medical degrees. We have our PhDs. We have all of our authority. And we say, well, I, I know better. And therefore, you don't trust your borderline. Right. You're, you're depressed. Uh, can I ask a question of you? Are you, are you a doctor? I'm a, I'm a, psycho, I'm a psychologist. So I'm a doctor. A... I'm not a real doctor. Real doctors went to medical school. I got, I, mean, I got a PhD. You got a PhD. PhD, yes. That makes you a doctor. Yeah, I'm a doctor. I call myself Doctor Simon. I earned the title. Okay. Uh, but I'm not a um, I don't. I don't. I could never write prescriptions. Um, no, 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 no. I don't mean that. No, I mean but I'm a PhD. doctor. I, I spent. Four, I was. I was a New York State certified psychologist. Okay. Um, Florida. Would you be interested interested in coming on to our show? Your show is what? I haven't established it yet. We're going to Denver, Colorado tomorrow to work up uh, all the thing we need to do with uh, with the um, people at Apple to get all our stuff established. Love to. You have my number. Call me and, and, and we'd love to on your show. We 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 work with young people. Our main focus right now is establishing. I own a. I just got funded last week. <laughs> called the Society for the Cultural Arts, and our main focus is to uh, establish a basis for helping young people, young artists, and people in our local community right oh, I'd now. Love I'd love it. But I also work with the um, Northern Cheyenne Tribe in Lame Deer, uh, Montana, which is one, one of the poorest tribes. So, so why don't you call me when that's set up, okay? Okay, can you give me your number? Yeah, you, you called me here, didn't you? Well, I called 716-7756. I didn't realize that was your show. Well, I, that's my show number. I'll tell you what, I'll give you... No, you know what, I, I don't want to give any personal numbers out. I don't know who's listening. So okay, uh, let, me give, let, let me give you my email. Give me your email, that's great. We can establish email content. Okay, uh, it's Prester John, P-R-E-S-T-E-R, John. J-O-H-N. Yeah, at Bresnan at net. At what? Bresnan, B-R-E-S-N-A-N dot net. B-R-E-S-N-A-N? Yeah. Bresnan.com? 
dot net. Net. Okay. Bresnan dot com. Dot net. Yeah, we're going. Like I said, we're going to Denver tomorrow. We're going to buy all the equipment we need, and I think we'll even be able to be, do video. Yeah. Oh, that's from right. What they, from what they from what they tell us. And, I'm going to say goodbye. You, you know, and the thing is, you know, I'm 64 years old, and I don't understand this thing. But I am. I met a kid yesterday at the Super Bowl party. 21 years old has got more damn brains. I mean, if I was as smart as he was at that age, I'd be a jillionaire. And he understands all the difference between the music from the old blues from the 30s and the 40s, right up through Sinatra era, right up through uh, um, the Rolling Stones, right up to hip hop and all this and all that. I can have this kid on the on the radio interviewing kids. My idea is what I want to do, if I can figure out a way to do it legally, is uh, people calling in with like poems and songs. That's right. And, uh, you and know. John, I'm going to have to cut you off, okay? I want to okay, I'm sorry. I, no, that's I okay. Uh, I'll be in touch with you. I'll send you an email. Okay, right. because you you can you can help us with what we're trying to do with mentoring 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 these kids. Okay, okay. And I used to be a ju- juvenile probation officer, you know, so I know right. a little bit about it. Right. Okay, I'll talk to you, John. Well, thank you for for your time. I appreciate Take it. Take care. All right. Uh, I'm here. I'm here. Okay. I want to I want to try to. It won't work. I'm not hanging him up. Okay. He hung up anyway. Um, yeah, that's interesting, right? Not me, uh, if anybody else wants to call and ask a question, I didn't mean to put you on the hold like that, uh, Bob. No, no, no problem. Um, so where do we go from here, Bob? Because um, nothing's changing. How do we change this? I, and, and I really feel that uh, psychiatry and that part of psychology that has aped psychiatry right. can't be reformed. You know, uh, this is a a big and important question. Where do we go from here? And the reason it's a big and important question, and I would say one of the most pressing questions in our society today is this. Uh, This whole way of viewing humanity, um, where you diagnose so many people as psychiatrically problematic or ill or with a disease, etc., you know, we're doing that to an ever greater number of kids. Yes. And once you do that to kids, and once you start medicating them, and especially once you start putting them on um, drug cocktails with one atypical, two atypicals, an antidepressant mixed in, maybe, quote, a mood stabilizer, you're really, in my opinion, sort of taking away that kid's right to be, that kid's right to grow up and, and, and... and figure out who he wants to be, and that kid's right to be a sexual person because these drugs do cause some sexual dysfunction often. And it, it's really, so if you look at what it means to be alive, in my opinion, is, you know, you, you're born and you start discovering yourself, and then you become responsible for yourself, and you have this glorious adventure of of, of trying to figure out what you want to be as an adult and who you yeah. want to be as an adult. Yeah, you want to be the character of your own story. You want, you to, want to be right, story. and you want to be the master of your own fate. And what we are doing with these diagnoses is we are designating those kids as defective, Hopefully. and then we're giving them drugs that mute their response to life and make them physically ill often, give them metabolic disorders, and then by the time they're 18, they get shunted into a life on SSI and SSDI. And the moral uh, depravity of that or the moral harm that's being done or the, just the physical, you know, the harm that's being done yes. is astonishing. I mean, there's never been a group of human beings that have had to grow up under the shadow of, you know, being labeled in this way and diagnosed in and this way. And they're all being watched. Yeah, and they're being watched. The you know, the minute they misbehave in, in, in class, they get diagnosed. You yes. get in a fight, you get diagnosed. Yes. It's, it's all insane. Yes. And the point is, we do need to stop this because, it, you know, you, and really if we can, I mean, adults, it's not doing well by many adults as well, but it's really screwing up childhood in this country. So we do need to stop it. Um, and, the, and then you ask the question is, well, how do we do it? And the way that, you know, I'm working on a new book, and the, my hope with this book is 
to just to show that because what's the shared value here? Well, theoretically, we believe in evidence-based medicine, right? And theoretically, those who are doing the prescribing believe in evidence-based medicine. Well, the evidence is quite clear. These sort of drug cocktails and this sort of um, putting people, young kids on antipsychotics, etc., it's really harmful. It's physically harmful, psychiatrically harmful, etc. It has terrible long-term outcomes. So my own hope is that if somehow we could get the science known, um, that maybe that would breed some change. I think that you're, you're a very important person, and I mean that. You're an important person because you, you write in a way that's very powerful. Mad in America is an incredibly powerful book. And it's written so that anybody could read it. Anybody who, who, who's uh, minimally educated, you, have a, you got through high school, you could read that book. And yet, none of the science is diluted. And I think that's a remarkable skill you have, that you can put uh, very complicated ideas into words. I was able to do that with my students in a community college. I can never write that way. You write that way, and I think that's fantastic. But in this new book, I don't think it's enough just to warn people. Right. We need solutions. An alternative. Right, and I will say, so the, the last part of the book is looking at alternatives. So it's looking, for example, at schools that have eliminated ADHD by uh, programs that involve, right. you know, working with teachers. Right. Or the one I heard the other day was, uh, uh, you ready for this? Go ahead. Uh, a school, it's a charter school, and, and they're eliminating ADHD and problems. You know how? They don't bust the kids to school. They have parents and others that go out, gather kids, and walk them to school. And the exercise of walking to and from school, in about, fact, is, is about helping. about attention from the parents? What's that? The attention they get from these parents. Well, it's attention, but it's also physical exercise. That's, it's a totality. And yeah, sure, it's, it's an environment. to us, and we're going to spend time with you. We care about you. Right. So the, the, I do think you're absolutely right. It's not enough to say this isn't working. You have to look at things that are working, and, and hopefully I'll be able to identify a number. And certainly one of the things I, I feel has to be done is an attack on the whole underlying philosophy that we're nothing but brains, that we're machines, and that you could tinker with us chemically or, or in other physical ways, and that's going to really make a better person in a better world. It's just not going to happen. Well, you know, there is sort of a scientific arrogance there, and that is, you know, you take this, you know, this body-brain machine, body-brain thing we are that is so incredibly complex, and just, you know, the most complex creation you know, that evolution in the known come universe. up with. What's that? Yeah, in the known the universe. Known universe. And the idea that, that that somehow you can tinker with this neurotransmitter or that neurotransmitter and make yes. people better, uh, and there's really quite an arrogance there, and this yes. sort of reductionist philosophy of being is... is, is well, is I don't know how much success we're going to have, Bob, but I don't think that as long as we breathe, we can give up on this because it's just too damn important. Well, I think it's one of the real moral challenges of our era. Uh, I keep go to the maybe kids. I should write a letter to Obama, but they'll probably have me locked up. <laughs> and that would be the end of that. Listen, no, let me thank question. you for coming on. My pleasure. Um, and let me wish you great, great success with uh, Mad in America and certainly with the new book. Well, thank you. And I hope we could stay in touch. Uh, Larry, thanks a lot. I really enjoyed the last two weeks. Take care. Take okay. care. You too now. Okay. Uh, folks. Uh, next week, I'm going to be in Disney World with my uh, daughter and grandchild. I can't wait for that. The week after, I'll be back. And then two weeks, three weeks from today, I have to have knee surgery. Uh, I have a very good doctor. He really is a good, he's a good healer, but he also understands the needs of a person as a total person. And uh, I think that is, is one of the reasons I keep going back to him. He understands that uh, my desire to play tennis is not something you simply say, well, just don't. Uh, whether or not he'll help, I don't know. So I won't be on in three weeks. And then I hope to uh, have some more guests on uh, and, and, uh, and thereafter. And please call in. And those of you who are listening, give this show. If you like the show, and apparently I'm getting a lot of nice response, give it a five. Give it a rating. Uh, and, and very important, because that really increases the number of people who will listen. So, 
It's cocktail hour, boys and girls, and I wish to uh, uh, you all good health. And I will be uh, back uh, in two weeks uh, with a show on education because that's another one of my hobby horses uh, in terms of what we are basically doing to uh, destroy our children and our future, how we deal with our schools. So take care and goodbye. Something good.